welcome you. If we have not had the chance to meet, I'm Laura. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we are so glad you're joining us here in service and online this morning. And welcome back. If you've been following along, you know that we've been working through a series called Christmas Classics, where we've had some fun watching some movie clips uh, from movies like Elf and Home Alone and It's a Wonderful Life. And these movies are fun, and they're nostalgic, and we tend to laugh and maybe shed a tear or two. But the reason that we've taken a look at how these movies, or at these movies, is because sometimes clips from these movies tend to reveal a truth about the true meaning of Christmas. For example, in ALF, we talked about how to have a great Christmas by sharing Jesus with those that are far from God. In Home Alone, we watched a mom do everything she could to find her son, just like God does everything he can to find us through love and movement and sacrifice. Last week, Pastor James discussed what happens when life doesn't go the way we want and that we need to seek the only source of life that cannot be destroyed. Today, We're going to talk about the best Christmas movie ever made, but first, let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you so much for this time to come together, to gather in your name. Here in person or those online, God, we just thank you for them coming and being willing to open hearts and minds and ears to hear and see what you have for us today. God, we have some special um, requests today that we just want to lift to you. We want to praise you for Sherry Stewart being home from the hospital, God. We thank you that she is doing well. We ask for your hand of blessing on her as she goes about tests to find out the source of her um, hospital stay last week. God, just be with her as she figures out uh, what is going on and getting some answers she needed. And God, we want to be praying for the Oris family today. Um, Bill and Lisa Orris lost their daughter-in-law unexpectedly and suddenly yesterday, and she leaves behind their son, Michael, and their um, three-year-old twin sons, God. We lift this family to you in this time of grief and processing this unexpected tragic loss in their lives, God, and we just ask for your hand of blessing be on this family. And God, just bless all of us here. Whatever it is that we're going through, whatever trials and adversity and struggles we have, God, help us to lay them down at your feet here today. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. So, I would argue the best Christmas movie ever made is... Some of you, I heard someone say it. They didn't say it loud, but did someone say Die Hard? I heard it. I heard it. He did not say it loud and proud, though, just so we know. And I am of the camp that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. (laughs) Please don't hate me. How many of you out there are of the camp that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Right? (laughs) Mm. How many of you are of the camp that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie? Right? Who knew that one movie could garner such discussion and debate, right? Holy moly. No, that is not the best Christmas movie ever made. I would argue the best Christmas movie ever made, or one of the best, I'll give you that, is Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, here's the thing. Everybody keeps wanting to call this 
The Grinch. That's not the same movie. And I'm about to date myself because The Grinch is the one with Jim Carrey. This is the OG, the original 1966 version, Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, narrated by Boris Karloff. That, to me, is one of the greatest Christmas movies ever. And for those of us with short attention spans, it's only 25 minutes long. Now, last week, Pastor James asked you to watch a four-hour movie. So, who's your favorite pastor now, right? <laughs> On that note, <laughs> when looking at Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, it's easy to draw some comparisons to the truths in the first church that we read about in the book of Acts and the characters from this beloved movie. To begin with, let's take a look at the Who's down in Whoville who liked Christmas a lot. The movie opens up with a scene from Whoville of the Who's all working together. They're putting up Christmas lights and bells and bows and packages, and the whole town is gathered together to celebrate Christmas. And they're singing that, really, I love it, but it might be annoying because it gets stuck in your head, song, Welcome Christmas. All of these Who's are singing together, they're working together, they're unified as one group of people. And in looking at the book of Acts, we read about the first church's birth and growth. In Acts 1.8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The first believers were to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts records the origin and the growth of the Christian movement, telling us how those first believers lived out Christianity. It tells of the triumphs and the trials and the passions that drove that first church and the source of power that helped energize it. In Acts, we read about this community that was committed to Christ and the cause of the gospel, that they were willing to sacrifice their desires for the good of others. This first group of believers were really radical in many ways. They gave up their lives to live for others. Now, in some ways, the first Christians, after Jesus' death and resurrection, were much like the Who's down in Whoville. To see what I mean, let's take a look at this clip from the movie.
you've seen it before, maybe now that song will be stuck in your head, right? But I'm sure that first century believers did not have antennae or bow ties, but according to the book of Acts, they were believers working together to live their lives like Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Luke records it this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Now to us here in the United States, living united might mean that we root for the same football team, or we work on the same project at work, or the same committee at school. But in our individualistic world today, living in one heart and in one mind might seem archaic to some of us. It might seem impractical. In fact, I believe many would argue that first century Christians were able to live the way they lived because it was a different time and a different place and a different world. But I would argue that living like first century Christians seems unobtainable to us today here in the United States because we're unwilling to walk the path of truly following Jesus, giving our lives to live like him, to truly join together hand in hand and hearts to hearts. Now, don't get me wrong, people in the, first Acts, in the first century church recorded in the book of Acts certainly had their moments. I mean, we have Ananias and Sapphira who were uh, struck down dead uh, for lying to the Holy Spirit. Then we have this group of Jewish Christians who cast out anybody who did not conform to Mosaic law, leaving Gentile believers out if they didn't conform to Jewish tradition. I mean, there were some things happening that were definitely not unity-related. But overall, the mission in the first church was to come together heart and mind. So the Acts Church appears to have a few similarities with our Who's Down in Whoville. We see this unity of a group of people that are very similar to first followers in the early church. The second comparison I want to make when looking at the Who's and the early church recorded in the book of Acts is both the Who's Down in Whoville and the first Christians had a hater. Acts 9 records it this way. Those who belonged to the way were persecuted for their beliefs. So the Who's down in Whoville had their hater, and he was the Grinch, right? He was this green, grumpy hermit of a character named the Grinch, and he did not care much for the Who's down in Whoville. In fact, I think it's safe for us to say that he wanted to destroy them in any way he could. Let's take a look and see what I mean.
hated the Who's and their prepping for Christmas. In fact, he hates them so much that he hatches a plan to stop Christmas from coming. So as the movie progresses, we see him sneaking into homes to steal presents and packages and bows. He even steals the last can of Who hash. Right, Jody? She's saying it with me. You get the point. He is out to destroy Christmas. So enter the Grinch of the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. Only he's not fictional, and he's not fuzzy, and as far as my understanding and studying of the New Testament goes, he is certainly not green, but what he is is hell-bent on destroying those who believe in the Messiah, the resurrected Christ. Many of us know him as Paul, the writer of 13 or 14 books of the 27 books of the New Testament, or we might know him as a missionary for Christ. But before he was Paul, a zealot for Jesus... He was Saul, a zealot out to destroy believers of Jesus in any way he could. He hated anything that disputed the traditions of the Jewish people. And this counter-movement called Christianity for Saul would have been the height of disloyalty. He had similar thoughts as the Grinch. I must stop Christianity from spreading, but how? And he attempts to do so, so much more intensely and seriously than our movie character does. In Acts 9, Luke writes about Saul saying, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Now, in our day, um, Saul would have actually been deemed a terrorist. So he sets out to Damascus, and on his way, he's on his way to find Christians. He has a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Our hater experienced a heart change. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. It's in this moment that Jesus identifies himself as Jesus. This is the moment for Saul when he fully understands what he had been fighting, that Jesus was the resurrected Christ. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth was alive in this moment is such a realization for Saul. And he realizes that Jesus' disciples had actually been right. Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. This was not something that Saul could deny any longer. And we know this because we go on to read in verse 7, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Now, in ancient Jewish tradition, fasting for three days means repentance. It means turning towards God. In Latin, the word for conversion means to turn around. Here was Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of Christians, turning around to face the truth that Jesus 
was the resurrected Messiah. This moment in the life of Saul is considered one of the most critical events in the history of God's dealing with humanity. The change that occurred that day was not created from within. It was created from without. Like the Grinch in our movie, Saul had a hole in his heart. I'm not sure if he was trying to fill it with garlic, like the song in the movie suggests, but we can learn from the book of Acts and the letters that Paul wrote, telling of his own heart and how it had been transformed that day. You see, Saul of Tarsus was living a life with a heart that was two sizes too small, but on the road to Damascus, he had a heart transformation. Enter our third and final comparison of how the Grinch stole Christmas and the book of Acts. We have Cindy Lou Who. In the movie, Cindy Lou Who is a sound, she's sound asleep in her bed while the Grinch creeps into her house. He steals everything, the lights, the bows, the packages, ribbons. He even steals crumbs for the mice. And when he's stealing the tree, a bulb falls off and it wakes up Cindy Lou. So she goes out there and she confronts him and she asks him, Santa Claus, why? Why are you stealing our Christmas tree? Why? And the Grinch gets nervous. And he starts biting his fingernails and trembling. And he comes up with some lie about how he has to take it back and repair it. I believe in this moment, because of the way the Grinch responds, she clearly was influencing him. Much like we read about Ananias, a well-respected Jewish leader and a devout follower of the way, does for Saul. In Acts chapter 9, we read, In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a name, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Whew! There is so much happening in these verses. First of all, we have Ananias, a believer in Damascus, who is called to go to Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not a job I would be signing up for. If the Lord comes to me and says, hey, I want you to go to this guy who's murdering your people and arresting your people and persecuting your people, I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm good. No, thanks. But Ananias was obedient. And the Lord lays out to Ananias his plan and shows him how Saul has changed. First of all, God points out to um, Ananias that Saul is praying 
to God right now. Next, the Lord calls Saul his chosen instrument and then goes on to tell Ananias he must suffer for my name's sake. I mean, maybe that's what sealed the deal, right? Maybe Ananias was like, oh, okay, if he's going to suffer, I'm good, I'll go, right? As long as it's going to be a little painful for him. I'm, I'm totally joking, but <laughs> you get the point. So he says, all right, God, I got this forgiveness and brother in Christ thing down. I'll go. And off Ananias goes and he finds Saul. And here's the thing. When he comes to Saul, he lays hands on him. Not like boom, 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 I'm going to beat you up, lays hands on him. But lays hands on him, calls him brother and welcomes him to join him in the family of Christ. And then he goes on to baptize him. Well, Cindy Lou Who and the Who's Down in Whoville and the Grinch are all fictional characters made up by Dr. Seuss. The historical accounts of Luke in the book of Acts tells of the work of God in one man's life that forever changed the history of Christianity. I mean, we could spend all day and all night and weeks on the book of Acts, reading about account after account of how the course of the first church changed dramatically and how Saul became a crusader over 30 years and died for the cause. But today I want to hone in on how this beloved Christmas movie and the book of Acts reveal the true meaning of Christmas for us today. In the book of Acts, we see a group of people that was continuously growing, changing lives, and being truly transformed by Jesus Christ. Saul himself writes about how God grasps his heart. In his letters to the first churches, he says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Saul, or Paul as we now know him, was an extraordinary man of God. And looking into the heart of Saul and the early church, we ourselves can experience how the life and ministry of Jesus can transform our hearts as well. To begin with, Saul was faithful. He faced so much adversity on his mission trips. He was in shipwrecks, he was imprisoned, he had people hunting him down to kill him, he had division amongst his own people, more imprisonment, yet he continued. It kind of reminds me of a story out of Ohio State University. Yes, I'm going there, I'm talking about Ohio State in service, my U of M fans, please do not get up and walk out on me. Hear me out. I want to talk about faithfulness and adversity. You see, the reality is like Saul, we will all suffer. We will face adversity. And Cameron Babb, fifth-year Ohio State wide receiver, who was recruited out of St. Louis, Missouri, knows this all too well. Coming out of high school, Cam was ranked 100. He was ranked in the top 100 players nationally. He was ranked 13th of all wide receivers in the nation. He caught 45 passes for 784 yards with nine touchdowns in only seven games. That's a pretty impressive football player. And then his senior year, he tore his ACL for the first time. 
In 2018, he missed the season due to another ACL tear. He came back for the 2019 season to tear his ACL yet again. In 2021, after being voted captain by his teammates, he missed yet another season due to a fourth ACL tear. But he never gave up, and his teammates never gave up on him. Never having played a single game, he was still voted captain by his teammates. If you watch any interview with Cam Babb, he will give all the glory to God. He will credit his successes and his determination to his life following Jesus. Cam Babb is faithful in adversity. And on November 12th, 2022, Cam Babb and the Buckeyes were playing Indiana University, and he caught his first career touchdown pass. And he gives all the glory to God. You see, adversity and difficulties, challenges in our lives, they're going to happen. We're all going to experience things. But when the struggles and the trials, they come our way, the question I got to ask is, will we remain faithful? Looking at Saul's conversion and reading Paul's letters, we see that by truly allowing our hearts to be transformed, we can remain faithful when life gets hard. Now, looking at the heart of Saul not only shows us that we must be faithful, but that Saul was humble. He didn't go around like, oh, today I converted 500, and over here I got 2,000. Oh, yeah, check that off the box. I got 3,000 over here. No, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, we read in his letters that he calls himself the least of the apostles, that I'm not meant to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He writes to the church in Ephesus saying, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Humility means that our hearts are transformed so much by the work of God that we are aware that we are not worthy. I'm totally going to date myself again. Wayne and Garth have been telling us a long time, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. It means that the talents we have, the successes we have, the triumphs and the wins that we celebrate are because God has touched our lives. That God has done something through us. Like Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, God works in the lives for the glory of his goodness. He writes this in a letter to the church in Corinth when he says, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. God has been making it grow. When we allow our hearts to be transformed, when we allow God to work in our lives, to fill the hole with him, to let him grow in us, that's when we recognize that he is in control. And finally, when considering the life of Paul, 
we must consider that in order for our hearts to truly be transformed, we have to have compassion. Here is a man that was tough. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, and through all of it, he did not back down. He stood firm in his faith and his mission. Yet in spite of all of his toughness and his tenacity, he had a heart of compassion. And we know this when he writes to the church in Corinth saying, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And again, he goes on to write to the pe to people in the church in Rome saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Through Paul's faithfulness and his humility and his compassion, we can see the true meaning of Christmas from an encounter with Jesus. This Christmas season, how are we letting our hearts be transformed? How are we letting Jesus fill the holes in our hearts? How are we letting him grow in our lives? In order for Paul to allow his heart to go from two sizes to more on that road to Damascus, he had to be open and ready to receive it. It's our hope and our prayer by hearing the words of Paul and seeing how transformed his life was that in this Christmas season, our hearts can be transformed as well as long as we are open and willing to receive it. Paul's heart change was a result of a heart being grown 10 sizes or more. And it can do the same for each of us this Christmas season. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come today in all sorts of places. Some of us come hearts wide open, ready to receive you and to hear and to be transformed by you, God. Some of us come today with hearts that are two sizes too small. God, wherever we are in our walk with you, help us to hear these words today. Help our hearts to be open. Allow us to grow in you. Like Paul and Apollos, God, we know seeds are being planted. We know they are being watered. And God, whoever it is that needs to hear that, to let you grow in them, let them hear and receive that today, God. We thank you for this time to come together and for Paul's words. In your precious name we pray. Amen.